0: Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm L. Jeffrey Moore. And I'm Art Brassell. Today's guest is one of the founders of The Whisper Forge, a production company that is responsible for some of the best narrative podcast shows that you can find online. And I am not joking. I love these group of people. With such shows such as The Far Meridian, the sci-fi comedy hit Star Tripper, and the show that started it all, the award-winning science fiction hit, Aris Paradoxica. There's no telling what crazy creation will come next. Please welcome Misha Stanton. What is going on? Oh, I'm doing just lovely. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. So, uh, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's just get started. So, uh, dude, uh, what's your origin story? Tell us all about yourself. My origin story?
1: Yes. Uh, well, I grew up in Westchester County, New York. Um... My dad was a sports writer and was like made his money in media. And so I guess it inspired me a little bit to do the same. Um, I, growing up, I was uh, pretty, I was excluded a lot from a lot of physical activities because I uh, have a pretty severe physical disability. It's called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and it's a connective tissue disorder, which affects uh, just about everything in my body, but most severely my tendons and ligaments. They don't like to keep my joints in place. So getting into sports was hard, and like playing outside with kids was hard, so I ended up spending a lot of my time on the computer and playing around on the computer, and I got kind of good at it. And uh, I... I think those two influences, my dad being in media and me getting real good at the computer because I had nothing else to do, sort of led to where I am today.
2: <laughs> so I'm curious, like when you're first getting into the computer, well, f- first off, this might be a bold question, but h- how old are you?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, my, the first time I dislocated my kneecap, I was 13. Wow. Holy moly. So yeah and that yeah and then it was like a year like a bi-yearly occurrence until I was uh, I don't know 22. Oh wow.
2: Bi bi-yearly occurrence dislocating your, your one body part or another. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's rough, man. Um, <laughs> but so what kind of computer stuff did you do when you were when you were was it 13 when you started really diving into Yeah. Computers? Uh
1: so I I was writing a lot. Um I always was very into fantasy and sci-fi, so I wrote a lot of fantasy and sci-fi. Um I got into Photoshop pretty early. I think I was I must have been like around the same age 12 or 13 when my good friend first gave me my first illegal copy of Photoshop. Um, oh, wow. And I, I loved messing around on that thing. I was always into creative writing and graphic design. Uh, it took me a while to get to find audio. But I was always kind of messing around trying to get tech to make art.
2: And was this in the days of, like, the internet? Was it in full swing already at this point?
1: Oh, um... yeah. This was, I, I want to say this was, like, 2004, 2005. Okay. I'm not nice. that old. Okay. <laughs>
2: Well, it's funny cuz it's like the the younger you are, the the amount of like potential for what you could do with a computer when you were 13 like increases exponentially. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? The the amount of years you are younger, it's like, you know, when I was a kid there was a lot I could have done with a computer. I mean, I wasn't really doing all those things. <laughs> I was playing video games with it. Um I feel like now it's like, dude, if you're a kid now at 12, like the amount of like stuff that you can do on a computer, it's insane.
1: Yeah, it's the crazy. stuff that comes out in the next 15 years is going to be
0: so wicked. Oh, it's going to be nuts. I can't wait until uh, the Commodore 64 makes a comeback. I was uh, <laughs> definitely with that. Good luck, <laughs> Oh, man. We'll we'll will quick, uh, Misha. So with with your condition, uh, what has science done lately to try and uh, offset that? Ah,
1: that's a really good question. Not a lot can be done. Um, it's a genetic disorder that affects the way my DNA is programmed to code for collagen. Collagen is like the cement that sits between your, the bricks of your cells. And my body just doesn't mm-hmm. know how to make it right. So even if I, like, got supplements, it would only be give the materials to my body, which then has faulty blueprints.
0: Gotcha, um, gotcha.
1: So, like, stuff that's being done is there's some, like, CRISPR trials, which I don't know if you guys have heard of CRISPR, but it's basically a virus that goes into your DNA and edits your DNA for you. Mm, yeah, um, I've heard about that. And there's, there's some potential in that. But even my condition, like, it has, I, I want to say, upwards of 12 different subtypes. And the genes are only known for about half of them, and mine is not one of those. So, like, we don't even know which gene it is. So they can't really fix it until they find it.
2: Wow. Wow. Here's another (laughs) question. Uh, Have you seen the movie um, Unbreakable?
0: I have seen the movie
1: Unbreakable. I was just thinking that.
2: Is this similar to the Mr. Glass thing, or is this, like, Mm. different?
1: Uh, Uh... Very technically, no, because my bones don't break. My joints just go super loose and they like scatter all over the place. But like practically, yeah, it was because of the kids. They called me Mr. Glass. Really? <laughs> I mean, they didn't, the movie wasn't out yet. But yeah, basically. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> but, but very
2: similar situation yeah, 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 no
1: i've I've definitely heard that joke eight billion times and now the new glass movie's coming out. So who gets the last laugh? Oh, it's me. That's,
0: that's right. You. I mean, what better way, what better way to be attributed than a uh, Sam Jackson man? I know that's, uh, that's an honor.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so now getting back to your your origin story. yeah, um so then you're you're thirteen or so, you're getting really deep into computers, you're doing design, you're doing all these things. Um, is it, like, when do you find your passion for audio? Is it not till much later? Or, like, take us through.
1: Yeah, so so one thing I did leave out of the early origin story is my grandmother. Uh, I grew up really near New York City, and my grandmother was born and raised in New York City, and uh, she always had this huge passion for theater and Broadway. And so from an early age, she took me and my cousins to see a bunch of Broadway shows. And Access to that sort of let me dream in an artistic space uh, so that when I was 13, messing around with computers, turning into an indoor kid, uh, I went to a summer camp called Bucks Rock Performing and Creative Arts Camp. It's in New Milford, Connecticut, and it is a Montessori-style arts training camp, by which uh, that means, Montessori means, rather than... Prescribe kids a schedule and have them move from class to class. You basically sort of give an open field where you provide materials and access and um, uh, training mentors, but you sort of let the kids decide what they want to do that day. So you so at this summer camp you can you know you wake up in the morning as long as you're somewhere they don't really care where, but you can go sign up for a recording session at the recording studio or you can go blow glass or you can sign up for like a lesson in you know uh analog photography or ceramics or I don't know glass blowing is the big cool one they they get a lot of the hype um so when i was there i um i was you know kind of floating not really sure where i wanted to be i hung out in the computer lab a lot but that's a very you know indoor kid place one day my friend turns to me and says hey you should come with me to take down the stage equipment after the show is done at night. They let you stay up after put to bed. And I said, hell yeah, I want to stay up late. Let's do it. And at the age of 13, I became a stagehand. Wow. Nice. Um,
2: and this is at Montessori boarding school?
1: It, it was a summer camp. It was only over the summer. Summer camp. Okay. Um, the summer. okay. Wow. Yeah. So um, so from 13 up till I mean up through college, like I, I was working lighting and sound. Um, when I was 15, I was sort of forced to make a decision between the two. At the, at the summer camp, lighting and sound were combined, but everywhere else in the world, they're separate. Um, obviously, because they're very different disciplines.
2: Yeah, I think even at my high school, it was separate. Although, those those guys kind of mixed up and did, this, did, did both. Also.
1: The people at the summer camp also wanted it to be separate. The administration, don't even get me started. Uh, oh, wow.
0: <laughs> how, how can you separate tech and, and sound? I, I mean...
1: I mean, it was, it was like lighting and sound are two entirely—it's just you use different organs to perceive them. I don't—it's fine. Um, so at, at like 15, I chose sound over lighting, um, and then I carried that with me all the way through college. I went to college and got a, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in uh, theatrical sound design.
2: Oh, nice. What uh, college did you go to?
1: I went to Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, cool. uh, they had a really small design tech program that is really, really well-known um, throughout the country. The sound program was five kids. It was like me and four other people. Oh, wow. And I don't love musicals. I don't love mixing pit bands. I can do it. I'm happy to do it, especially if someone wants to pay me, but I'm not a huge fan of it. So, so people I, breaking
0: out in song
1: was not your favorite thing. It's not right? my favorite thing. Uh, no, you're, you're you got it. <laughs> um, so when I was there and I was, you know, like a sophomore, <laughs> there was no one else who wanted to just do all the straight plays. So, I did all the straight plays. And I did, I mean, I did Faust, I did, uh, The Winter's Tale, I did, um, the actor's nightmare, which is one of my favorite plays, I got to do an original play that was set in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, and I did this awesome quadraphonic sound setup that was so immersive; it was so cool. Oh,
0: that's great! And so was was that particular project the one that was like, yeah, this is definitely something that I that I want to do.
1: Like, was that like a watershed moment for you? Uh, I th- no, I think even by that time, I had already decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, I think the the watershed moment was probably in high school. Uh, my high school theater program was a little crazy and there's still legal issues surrounding that. So I won't go into too much detail. Oh dear God. Uh, Yep. Okay. Yep. But are
0: you, are you all right? I'm okay. It's my friends (laughs) that
1: I worry about, but they're fine. It's, it'll be all right. Um, (laughs) uh, but we did when I was, I guess I was a junior in high school. We did one flew over the cuckoo's nest and I went so hard with the sound design. I, like recorded wild bits of foley I went into a church and got an organist to play for me we got the the child study program at my high school to record them all chanting a creepy ass nursery rhyme it was awesome that's insane
0: definitely
2: All right so let's let's speed it up here a little bit so um, so you're, you're at college. Uh, you're doing these plays and you're really rocking it out really hard with the plays, um, you know, doing sound sound design and, and mixing for live audio, right? Is that yes. what it is? Or a- yeah,
1: so um, it was sort of combined. Even though they're two separate skills, sound design and, like, audio engineering, it was a combined program, so I ended up doing a lot of audio engineering.
2: Nice. And then, so you graduate college. Uh, then what happens to, to take us through the next step? I mean, because to me it seems like, oh, you're, you're destined to start working um, you know, in the booth in Broadway, go union, all that stuff, but I mean, I, I don't know, but it sounds yeah. like that
1: didn't Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely the track that was prescribed to me when I graduated, when my professors were like, you know, the next step is to go get your union card and be a designer. But I, and I did that for, you know, a couple years. I went and did load-in calls and lifted heavy boxes, and eventually I was, uh, you know, working on some higher profile shows, but it was a lot of physical labor for a kid who's severely physically disabled <laughs> um i just i found that mm-hmm. as the work went on you know i was only 25 and i was you know hunched over in pain like a mm. 60 year old mm. um and fortunate there
2: no way for you to to like bypass the physical labor part and just get to the the the, the tech you know to the whatever the boardroom or uh the,
1: not the not to sound uncouth but not without a bunch of people dying very quickly I don't know. <laughs> it's just sort of like that's the pecking order. Yeah. You know, you, you come There's up through overhire then, you until know. you get hired onto the bigger jobs. That's just how it goes, right. and I couldn't wait. I just did not have the the skeletal wherewithal to wait.
0: Right, but even even still, like even with that, when, while you are in college, I, I believe that's when you first started to get some of the uh, – the the inklings of of ours paradoxica. Oh yeah. Uh, oh right? this is yeah.
1: this is my favorite part of the origin story. How ours paradoxica ah, yeah, here came we about. Go. So it's college. I'm I want to say what what year was this? I must have been a this must have been like late in my sophomore year of college, I guess. Um, I'm doing theater doing my thing i lived on a dorm floor called the digital culture floor which means it was a bunch of internet nerds that all lived near each other Mm -hmm. and uh one of my neighbors was a guy named dan manning and we became very fast friends and he approached me in the middle of the night kind of just for no reason and was like hey have you ever heard of numbers stations now number stations are radio stations where they have cryptic broadcasts of like women reading series of numbers. And it was like a Cold War spy thing. But most people know it from the TV show Lost. There was a a radio station on the island that just broadcast a series of numbers and they were those numbers. So he was a big Lost fan. I was a big Lost fan. I'm a big Doctor Who fan. And we decided, what if we recorded a number station and broke into our college radio station and played it in the middle of the night when no one could hear it? So we did. That's
0: awesome. I don't think I've heard this this version
1: before. <laughs> um, this is and amazing. that was that was what we call the break-in. Uh, that was like the first broadcast. And it was just to see if we could broadcast things. We didn't like, no, we, it wasn't plot. There was no story behind it. It was just fun. And then we wanted to do a second one because it was a good time. And we started developing, like, why are these... Codes happening, who is receiving them, and we we came around to time travel, and they were like, "Oh, they're time travel spies, and they're secret time travel codes in messages." And while all that's going on, I'm doing theater, and I'm doing this musical for this director who, for some reason, hates sound designers. He just doesn't not, not want them to have any fun at all. So we're doing "She Loves Me," which is a, a very classic musical. It was on Broadway again recently, and is very good, but. I, I came up with all of these sound cues, you know, upwards of 50 of them for this beautiful show, and every single one got shot down. Like, every single one I played it, he was like, nope, cut it. Until I was left with one. I had one sound cue. But I still had to sit in all of the tech rehearsals, which are like 10 hours a day on a weekend. So I'm sitting there with one sound cue to play and nothing to do. So I start, in, in tech for a different show, I start editing the first pieces of audio into like the time travel story. And I started putting it together. I would pull actors out of tech rehearsal, like who weren't in scenes that we were working on. And I'd be like, Hey, can you record these numbers for me? That's super weird. I know, but like do it. And that's how we put together the first piece of audio.
0: <laughs> that's insane. Um, what do you think that was? Was that more of a power trip or, or this particular director just wanted, you know, just, for, I mean, like no audio whatsoever. I mean, being
1: a theater director is a power trip a little bit, you know, <laughs> like yeah, 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 being in that position, you, you want it to be. <laughs> no, I think it's just he came from an older school of theatrical production before sound designers became really prominent and became really immersed in the medium. You know, She Loves Me, unless you're doing it in a very modern way, is kind of a very old school musical so maybe he was right. Maybe it didn't need all the sound effects, but he could have told me in a way that didn't make me sit there bored with nothing to do for five days. Yeah, but if it wasn't um, for
0: that, you wouldn't have gotten those recordings of those numbers. So. Yeah.
1: So, so that's true. So we put together six little, you know, mini episodes. They couldn't have been more than ten minutes long. And we, you know, a friend of ours had a radio show on at night, and we convinced her to like, hey, don't lead these in, don't introduce them, play them like another song in your playlist just like don't talk about it and just put them up and she did and it was cool and we broadcast our first little mini series um and from there we made a second one and we were planning a third one and we kept spiraling it just sort of kept coming this this show this this inkling of an idea and then i how was it received Hmm? how was it uh received i don't think anybody knew it was happening Nobody ever told us they heard it. Nobody knew it was us. Our name wasn't attached to it. Like, no one knew. But it was fun. It was fun for us. That was the important thing.
2: Hilarious. Wow. Um, So then then how does this go from this experiment, basically, to an actual show?
1: Yeah. So we... Iterated on this for a few years, and it was always so cryptic. All of the story was hidden behind the number codes, and you like if you were listening to it and didn't want to do any of the work, you could not tell what it was about. And we're doing this for years and years, and I graduated, so we got, we lost access to the radio station. And Dan, but Dan and I didn't want to stop, so we kept being like, "What is the next version of this thing?" And it turned into ours um, Paradoxica. It turned into the first episode. Where it was a scientist who's from now and accidentally gets thrown back in time into the middle of a Cold War era military experiment. The government gets their hands on the time machine almost immediately and starts using it for Cold War espionage. And that's where the codes came from.
0: And when, when did when did the first episode of ours Paradoxica air?
1: Uh, that's a really good question because we re-recorded it a couple of times.
0: Oh, that's right. You remastered it. Yeah, so
1: it. originally um, the show starred a character named John Grissom. And there was like this whole long backstory about being the grandson of Gus Grissom, who was a real astronaut. Um, and we recorded a couple of episodes with uh, a star actor who I won't name. But it was good, but we the, the actor ghosted us pretty quickly. Um, he had some issues in his personal life that are entirely valid, but kind of left us in the lurch. So in 2014, late 2014, we started looking around for to recast. And while we were looking around for new actors, I said to Daniel, Hey, is there any reason the main character of the show has to be a guy? And he said, No, I guess not. We rewrote it with a woman in mind and it made the show so much better. It just made it shine. And that's when we started looking for women for the part. Uh, We cast Kristen Mercurio, who I had known from around at college, um, who was trying to get into voice acting. And we recorded the first six episodes with her in March of 2015. And we released the first one in June.
0: Nice. Nice. And so with... So, you know, for, for the listeners out there who hasn't, uh, who didn't have a chance to, to hear this show, uh, tell us, what is it about?
1: Ours oh, Paradoxica is a story of time travel Cold War espionage. Uh, it features, uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Sally Grissom, a contemporary physicist who accidentally uh, invents a time machine uh, that only goes one way. It only goes back into the past. She appears immediately on the deck of a giant ship, which is part of a U.S. military experiment in the 40s. Uh, they pick her up. They confiscate her time machine. They sort of indenture her into service. Uh, they put they put her together with a bunch of other brilliant scientists of the day and coerce her into creating a system of time travel that the U.S. government can exploit for an upper hand in the Cold War. Um, it, the first season follows sort of the development of the technology and the development of the infrastructure. The second season looks at the inter-American politics of how that power is used. So we look at a lot of, like, marginalized uh, voices and characters. You know, there's uh, a gay Jewish woman. There's uh, a couple of uh, black soldiers just home from World War II. There's a lot of people that, like sort of get shunted off into the corners of historical fiction. We bring that up in season two. And season three is all about the conflict between uh, American time travel and Russian time travel.
0: Which is definitely, yeah, definitely something that we can all relate to right now in this day and age.
2: (laughs) So let me ask you another question, Misha. So what, uh, at the time when you're doing the first season... You know, I know podcasts are already a huge thing but by then. You know, there's tons of podcasts out there. I mean, that's around when we started our podcast, and it was already podcast crazy. <laughs> um, but how many narrative podcasts were there? Because, you know, I don't really know that many now oh, even.
1: sure. There's I'm- actually a great um, article that just got published by the BBC that tracks the the past few years of uh, podcast fiction. Yeah. Um, I would love to give it to you so you can link it to your listeners. Um, it was this big, comprehensive study where basically narrative fiction was split up into three or four phases. And the first phase was in about 2008, where there were shows um, like We Are Alive, which is a show by my colleague Casey Wayland, which is like basically The Walking Dead but for podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's like a zombie survival story. It's very cool. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there was also like things like The Leviathan Chronicles, and I think Our Fair City started around that time, um, sort of the the early entries into podcast serial fiction. Um, there was a second phase, I think, in 2012, when uh, arguably the most famous piece of podcast fiction, Welcome to Night Vale, started, which I'm sure somebody must have heard of out there, but um, it's basically a show, uh, in like a weird ass desert town where like nightmares and magic exist. And, uh, it's like community radio broadcast. It's been going for, I think six or seven years. They do live tours all around the world. It's very big.
0: Right. But that's kind of, that's more a uh, twilight zone ish, right? Like there's no, cause I've heard, I've heard a couple of episodes fr- uh, from welcome to night Vale and from what I'm gathering, like is, is, they're like a narrative or is it just more It's
1: definitely a looser feelings. story. There yeah. there are recurring elements and later there becomes more of a plot. The, the years tend to have like year-long arcs that get resolved at like the anniversary. Um but no, you're mm. right. It's definitely like a looser. It's just sort of like here's what's happening in Nightvale today. Some weird stuff.
0: Right. And you know, w- w- with that said, I mean, that's something, you know, that's great, you know, you're either I end up listening to most of my podcasts while I'm, you know, driving around. Mm-hmm. And so I can, like, finish a whole thing, like, during the course of, of my work day or whatever, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah.
1: No, just that, that like, the commute and, like, doing household chores are the two big times that a lot of people listen to podcasts, especially fiction.
0: Right. And, yeah, yeah, and I think that's uh, that's great. And I think it's opened up. You know, a lot for creators, it's, uh, podcasting has opened up a lot for other performers, like they can literally just sit down at their desk or their makeshift, uh, sound, sound booth closets or corner of the room and lay, lay some tracks down. Yeah,
1: it's, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, Welcome to Night Vale definitely inspired us When we weren't, because that came out when I was in college, right when we were developing what would become Ars Paradoxica, and I don't think we would have thought to make it a podcast if we hadn't heard that show. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. So, so actually, so BBC lists the third phase of audio fiction of modern audio fiction in 2015, 2016, right when we launched Ars Paradoxica, because right when we launched um, another really popular show, The Bright Sessions, which I now also produce. was also just coming out there's a a really popular show called wolf 359 that came out like just before us like six months or so before we did um and all of those kind of came up with you know uh we were pushing the boundaries of what the story could do the production values like skyrocketed around this point i don't know how or why but like all of a sudden it got really good sounding it sounded like It stopped sounding like an audio book with a couple of sound effects, and it started sounding like TV you can watch without your eyes.
2: Oh, nice. So my big question is, like, like I'm really familiar with like the old radio shows of like Mm -hmm. the pre like 40s, like 40s, 30s, 20s, like sure back in the like you know what people used to listen to before TV existed, basically. Yeah. Uh, You know, and there's like the Shadow and a bunch of other like really popular, famous shows from back in those days that my grandpa. He used to listen to these things when I was a kid. Like he used to use to Shadow every night, and like there was like a cowboy show I think he used to listen to. Oh yeah, my um, my
1: grandma really liked Dragnet.
2: Oh yeah, and yeah, Dragnet. Yeah, that's another example, of course. Um, so how how much uh, are these modern day podcasts, these narrative podcasts, inspired by those old radio shows, or are they kind of more like like what you said, like audio versions of modern TV?
1: I can only speak for myself, and. I know that modern audio drama scholars hate me when I say this. I had never heard a radio play before I made one. I never sat down to listen to them. I was not a huge fan of them. My dad and my mom never listened to them. Like, I didn't know about them really at all. I knew that, like, War of the Worlds existed at some point in the 30s. Right. And that was about it. Right. Um, wow. I'll I'll say, like, really, I got into podcasting because I was looking down the barrel of a long, arduous career of physical labor in theater. And I said, hey, how can I get out of physical labor but still use the same skills I know in acoustics and audio and, like, do it at a desk with air conditioning and health benefits? And also, it might be cool if the sound designer was, like, more in charge. Yeah, I like being in charge of things. And that's how we made a podcast.
0: Well, you definitely was able to create a whole world, you know, particularly, you know, with Ars Paradoxica and now your production company, uh, The Whisper Forge. But I, I think the the big question, I guess, like with Ars Paradoxica is why historical science fiction?
1: Like, how did that oh, come about? I've always know? been a huge fan of historical science fiction. I love historical fiction. I love when you take a historical setting and throw something fantastical into it. I So when I was in high school, I started writing, like, a short novella about, um, like, child experiments in World War II that gave kids superpowers, which basically ended up being the plot of Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in Avengers 2, where, like, they got experimented on by Nazis and then they hit the streets and now they have powers on their own. Right, right. Um, I, so, like, I did a lot of historical research for that. One of my favorite stories in the recent... In that past few years is um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell which is um, a novel and then a mini series about magic in like the Napoleonic Wars so it's mm-hmm. like England in the early 1800s but also there's magic and I just love how specific that is I love that there's so much texture whenever you pick a period and then you throw like I would love to see how you know uh, like ancient civilizations react to magic or a future or like have wildly future tech. I loved Black Panther for that reason. That it was this like isolated society oh, yeah. that had all the trappings of like being separate from the world, not being part of like Western industrialization, but still came around to their own technology and how different that is and how specific it is. I love that.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's amazing. And Ars Paradoxica uh, is probably one one of the best podcasts that that has been recognized. So you guys have won awards.
1: We sure uh, have. Um, I'm always surprised when we win awards. Like, I know that like we spent three years making this the absolute best show we could be. And it's been downloaded millions and millions of times. But it will never not feel like the shitty prank I pulled in college. Where we broke into a radio station and just did our own shit, you know.
2: Right, but what a what a what a creative and like organic place for uh you know a show to come from, you know whether it be you know visual or audio only. It's like that's that I think is part of the magic of storytelling is that things come out of, you know these these moments in time.
1: Yeah. Turns out that one weird radio prank was the basis of my entire career, so I guess I shouldn't knock it.
0: Oh, exactly.
1: So I
2: know we have some questions about, um, you know, like podcasts turning visual and all this other stuff. But before we get into that, I'm just really curious, as a podcaster as well, like, like how do you guys make these shows happen? Like, are you just bootstrapping everything? Like, do you have sponsors? Like, how are you keeping the business afloat? Is it, is it all Patreon? Like, like, how are you guys doing it?
1: That's a really good question. So I'll tell you this. Um, so I'm a podcaster full time, um, which is to say I make all of my money doing podcasts. Now, those are those my podcasts? Are those Forge podcasts? Hell no. Um, I, my day job is with um, the, co- the podcast company Wondery. I make a show for them called Safe for Work, which is about work-life balance. It's like an advice show. You call in and get advice from the experts. I also make um, LeVar Burton Reads, which is a podcast where LeVar Burton from Reading Rainbow picks out some adult spec fiction and reads it with detailed music and sound design. It's really great. You should check it out. It's really good. If you like Reading Rainbow, you would like it. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so that's where I make my money to like pay my rent. And all of that allows me to... Whenever I find gaps in that work schedule, like, you know, like when Safe for Work is done for the week and LeVar Burton Reads is done for the week, I go and do my indie shows with my indie friends. And The Whisper Forge makes most of its money through Patreon. We do run a couple of ads here and there, but mostly we get it through Patreon. Um, it makes enough money that the shows don't cost anything. So we don't have to put our money into them to make them happen at this point. But we also don't really get paid.
0: <laughs>
1: right. right. <laughs> you know, like we don't, I don't pull a salary from Ars Paradoxica. We, one of the things that I was really gung-ho about in the past year or so is now that like in its third season, Ars Paradoxica finally started making a little bit of money. And up until that point, we had not paid actors. We had not paid writers. We had not paid sound design, anything. So in the third season, I was like, no, no, no. We're paying actors this year and I, I didn't really even get paid as the producer through all of that but i was really i was really it was really important to me that we be able to pay other people for their time because they they don't get the prestige that i was getting out of it you know by the end of Ars paradoxica i was able to trade on my own name to get more jobs i mean jeff you were in Ars paradoxica for 2 years i don't i don't yeah. know that you're trading on that but that's why it was important to me that I pay you actual money.
0: (laughs) Well, I, well, number one, as, as an artist, I definitely appreciate that gesture, you know, but I, you know, yes, I want to get paid doing what I love, but having uh, known you guys, you know, for as long as I have, I would have kept doing it. And, you know, so, and if there was ever a moment when, Giving me money would have brought the production down. I'm like, put that money back in back into production. You know, so
1: yeah, and I, I so thank. You. I mean, I, I thank you. I love that that enthusiasm for the project ended up cutting both ways. That by the end of the show, we really gathered a cast together that loved the show and believed in the show. But even if you're making that kind of passion project, and I'm talking directly to the indie filmmakers listening to this podcast right now, even if you have a cast and crew willing to do work for free don't let them always try to compensate everyone who's doing a professional job on your work even if it's like ten dollars or a pizza you know you can pay them something and that just that just establishes that like yes i know we're friends yes i know we're doing this project together but this is a professional environment even if we're only getting paid you know ten dollars
2: well jeff and i both just made short films um you know which we helped each other out on and we yeah. Yeah. both paid our crew with uh, lunch and, or dinner and drinks. That was our, our payback.
1: Right. That's all uh, it takes. You know, just something. <laughs>
2: I <laughs> mean, and, right. and of course, we want to pay everybody all the time. But I think that, you know, if you had to pay everybody all the time for every project you made, uh, there are a lot of projects that wouldn't, wouldn't get made. Like, oh, absolutely. Uh, I you know, like two of it... my short films, we didn't pay the crew. Two of them we did. You know, um, but it just, it just, you know, when you're doing it all on your own and you're putting your own money in to make it happen, it's just, you know, really hard to, um, to pay everybody, especially when you have to pay for hard things like special effects and props and visual effects and, you know, sound design and and just stuff that you can't get for free. It's just, it really, you know, it adds up.
1: Well, I'll say this. Um, so one of the more recent shows we launched, Star Tripper launched this year, and um, our lead actor, Ian McEwen, is a friend of mine because we work together on The Bright Sessions. Um, and when we brought him on, we knew we couldn't afford him because he's too good an actor. So what we did was instead we, we were like, listen, we can't pay you. He's like, I know. I said, what if we made you a producer on the show and we signed paperwork that allowed you, you know, like shares in the show and payment on the back end if it ever gets successful. And if it doesn't, you don't get paid. But if it does, then you get paid. And he took that really... He was, like, looking for any excuse to be on the show. And he's like, I can't do it for free, but I will do anything to be on the show. So he took that All producer right. credit. And now, nice. I mean, and now, that, now Star Tripper's talking to... I mean, we're talking to some big names with some big money involved, and he's going to see a little bit of that back, and I'm very glad to give it to him.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Go ahead, Albert. Oh, you had a question? So the
2: one other thing I want to talk about, just because I, I really don't understand the business of podcasts on any level
1: really (laughs) can i give can i give you a hint no one neither does anyone else we're all making it up as we go along
2: but but you work for shows who pay you to produce them yes how do those shows make money is that just ads or are they ads losing money no
1: it is ads it is venture capital and ads um wondery in particular is like an ad machine most of their staff is ad sales.
2: And then, how much um, do they get for an ad read on a show? Like, you know, like that. Not even just wondering, but let's just take like any like popular podcast. You know, like if a Me undy spot is gonna be on a podcast, like, what are they? What are these guys getting for that? Are they getting like two hundred bucks? So I'll tell you that
1: most advertisers that will advertise on independent podcasts um, look at like. Your download numbers. So either they'll look at what your downloads are at and offer you a flat fee, or they'll say, depending on how many listeners download the episode that we're advertising on, we'll pay you a set amount per number. So usually it's it's CPM cost per mil, which is per thousand downloads. Um, so a, a recent ad we ran on the Far Meridian was priced at 40 CPM. So we had $40 per thousand, and it got downloaded about 7,000 times. <clears throat> Sorry. So we ended up making about $300. It's not bad. Um, it's really like what you can swing for and what they'll agree to. It's, a, it's all a big negotiation.
0: Right. And it's that kind of passive income. I mean, you're make. You're, and I, when I say passive, I mean, you know, you're going to make this show anyway. And so capitalizing on on it is yeah. just uh, icing and, on the cake. And, w-
1: and in negotiations, we we're well aware of that. You know, we'll, we'll start out asking for like, hey, we'd love four hundred dollars for the spot. And someone will go, I can't afford four hundred dollars. How about one fifty? And we'll look at it and we'll go, you know, well, one hundred and fifty dollars better than zero dollars. And we'll take it.
2: Right, right. You
1: know, it's all about what it's all about, like what you can negotiate for yourself, but not being afraid to do so, especially if you have a product you feel strongly about. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: And I think that go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just
2: going to talk about our podcast because we have uh, we've had sponsors on before, and the number that we were able to get for our sponsors were just fifty dollars per episode for a Mm. sponsor. You know, and I tried to negotiate more on a couple instances, and those deals ended up just going away so yeah <laughs> we kind of <laughs> well realize that $50 an episode is about what our podcast is worth at the moment you know and we get somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 downloads a week
1: you right know? Um, so, so so by by comparison um ours Paradoxica gets about 12,000 downloads a week and we haven't put out an episode in six months that's, wow 12, that's crazy
2: downloads a week
1: yep just casually holy, holy shit How <laughs> yeah do you guys
2: get that that many downloads
1: Uh, well, in the beginning, we weren't getting that many, and then somebody really popular tweeted about us, and then uh, somebody even more popular than them tweeted about us, and then we got featured by the Sci-Fi Channel and BBC. Drop the names. (laughs) Drop the names. Uh, uh, Time Scanner, Richard Penner, tweeted, gave us our first tweet, and he is a wonderful person and a good friend of mine now. So, if you want a cool-ass experimental fiction podcast, check out The Infinite Now. It is broadcast from uh, a former time agent imprisoned at the heat death of the universe. It is very cool.
2: Wow. Sounds awesome. Um, so get someone famous to tweet
1: about you. That's <laughs> Yeah. Well, here, here's another thing is that in season two, I also, um, I live in LA and I made a bunch of famous friends and then I convinced my famous friends who were like on major network TV shows to come be in my podcast and then they tweeted about it and that helped too.
2: <laughs> okay, so move to LA, make famous friends. Yep, get, that's get pretty much it. To, uh, you just got
1: to get in the mix,
0: movies. man. Get in the movies. Yeah,
1: it's then, well, uh... but that is, I mean, it, that's an important thing. Is like you can be as talented as anyone in the world. You can be the most talented person in the world, and it's still about who you know. It's always about who you know, and so like an important, a really important thing to develop for for up and coming media makers and filmmakers is like. Don't neglect the soft skills, you know? Interpersonal skills will take you just as far as your technical skills.
0: Exactly. And you still have to have a good product for anybody to oh, absolutely. Uh, pay attention to. Um, yeah, so. but,
1: but also, who you know also includes like people who can give you notes to make your work better. If you, if, it's, if you think it's good, show it to someone whose opinion you respect, and they'll tell you how to make it better. And that's also all who you know.
2: Awesome. Awesome. All right, Jeff, you go. You had a question. Hit it.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know the with the uh, with Ars Paradoxica now now being over, you guys have started uh, the Whisper Forge. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about that? Who who's in sure. it? Sure.
1: Um. Yeah. So the Whisper Forge is really a production collective that came out of Ars Paradoxica. Um, in season two, we hired. It, so Sorry. When we started the show, it was me and Daniel, and then in season two, we realized that the project was bigger than just the two of us, so we hired four more writers. Um, those writers are Julian Mundy, Eli Baraza, Danielle Shamaya, and Toe Zaman. Uh, two of them I knew from college, one of them I knew from... Uh, we've been friends since we were 12 years old, and one of them got introduced by, uh, to us by one of our cast members. And we made... This wonderful little writing team. The writing room was so—I mean, it was stressful, obviously, but it was s- transcendent. It was like unlike anything I'd ever worked on before. And as yeah, we, yeah, you guys looked at-
0: treated it like a. Uh, I'm sorry. No, what? you. No, I'm just saying. So you guys actually treated. Uh, this show, like like you like you had a war room and you created like okay this is season two this is season well, three well you we didn't car, do it for season
1: yeah. two season two we kind of built piecemeal and then we didn't like that so for yeah for season okay. three we we flew everybody out to L A who didn't live in L A um, and we yeah we locked ourselves in a room for two days and came out with a full season
0: nice and what was that experience like actually actually plotting something like that out
1: oh my god it was my brain has never felt more like a used sponge. <laughs> like it was so draining. <laughs> I put every single idea I had into that and I argued for some things really strongly. And I feel like I, I really do feel like like my brain was a sponge and I wrung it out. I wrung out every single good thing I could and then I like had a, I don't know, a cup of gold, liquid gold. Uh, this metaphor got away from me. <laughs>
2: A liquid brain juice.
1: Yeah, but like it, it, it came out so strong for that season. Three was, God, one of the best things that I've ever made. I think it was so coherent and all the things sort of strung from one thing to the next, and it never let up. It was all killer, no filler. It was so cool.
0: Yeah, it was great. And and performing performing in in that show uh, was something that is actually really special, you know, to my heart, especially with, you know, the writers that you've had and the care that they took, especially with uh, with my character, Lewis Gaines, and, and everybody else. It was something that, that I was like, these guys really, really know what the hell they were doing. And, and I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I haven't really said this a lot, uh, Misha, and I want to let you know that there was one particular episode, I think it was m- like my very last uh, episode where I ended up at Alabama. I think it was Alabama State University at the time, but I think you guys had written in Alabama College or something like that. Anyway, oh yeah, yeah,
1: we uh, he, he, the uh, Jeff's character, Lou Gaines, was a professor, was a journalism professor, and we had him ending up at a college in Alabama. That since spoilers, yeah, spoilers. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, but like w- the the year that the episode took place was like 1953. And I think in 1956, they changed their name because it used to be like American, like Alabama Negro College and then it was just Alabama yeah. State College and then it was Alabama State University or something. And so we had to figure out which was the right name for you to use.
0: Right, right. And so what what had happened was, I think it was like after we finished recording that session, I was reading it and then I went online and I looked and I was like, holy shit, I think we messed up. We got to go back and re-record. And so when I actually started doing research... I saw that. No, they were right. I was like, these cats are on it. Like, and I never, I was never like, oh my god, like, are these guys, you know, what are they doing to my character? What are they, you know, and all that stuff? I was like, no, no, no. They, they know what they're doing. Well, thank you. That means so much. Read the script. Oh man, yeah. I, I mean, I was on it. Like as soon as, and there were, there was another moment, you know, as well, you know. But you know, there were just times when I was like, oh, I wonder, you know. Let me look up something just. For me to know, mm-hmm. right? And then, as I was, you know, reading and gathering information, I was like, "No, nah, they're on top of it." And you know, as an actor and as a person of color performing, I literally just kicked my heels back and was like, "Just waiting for the script and let's just do it." You guys took great care, so yeah.
1: That, that was really important to us, um, especially in the later seasons of Ars Paradoxica*, because the first season, um, we were just trying to write like a really tight sci-fi plot. And because Dan and I are white, we ended up making it super white. <laughs> and we saw it, and we noticed it. And in season two, we were like, "We gotta, we gotta get some people of color in this writing room, man. We can't do that again. That's not cool." Um,
0: well, you know, yeah, but even still, though, like, you know, y- yes, you know, having that realization, you know, matters and then but you also had a lot of uh, a lot of writers from the LGBTQ community and you know my character was friends with a with with the lesbian and there was you know, and what I really dug was the fact that there was no oh are they going to get together like no they're both two people who have something in common and they were working for this agency and uh yeah it it was it was great yeah
1: i i mean that was really important to me as a member of the lgbt community i'm bisexual and non-binary um it was really important to me as a fan of historical fiction and seeing how those voices just disappear like they didn't exist in the 50s and that's not true at all Right, Um, exactly what's funny is that like right after we started doing that um a tv show came on tv called timeless um which also started exploring, like, hey, there were black people in the forties. Hey, there were black people in the eighteen sixties. Like, they existed. <laughs> um, what's well, what's great is that, like, that show stars a friend of mine, and we ended up getting him on an interview, like, for an Ars Paradoxic oh, Aside remember Project. Seeing,
0: hearing that, oh uh, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> I heard that episode; it was funny as hell. I am trying to get I am
1: trying to get Malcolm on another podcast. We'll see how it goes.
0: Do it.
2: So, um, I am so I am curious. I have a couple questions, oh. but oh, oh, I, I. To...
1: No, I'm so sorry. I didn't end up. I didn't finish the question that you asked me. <laughs> I just realized. So yeah. So the Paradox... <laughs> what Ars Parado- was it? What the was question it? was, how did the whisper porch happen? Oh right. So so the R's paradoxical writers' room season three was winding down. We knew it was our last season, and we wanted to keep making shows together. Um, I also the writers contributed work for free again, as we were talking about. Like there needs to be some kind of payment in kind. So I so I as the sound designer and the the production head really was like, listen, we'll finish this show, and then I think you guys should write your own shows, and we'll make those. So Eli uh, wrote her own show, and that became The Far Meridian, and Julian wrote his own show, and that uh, became okay. Star Tripper. And Toe is writing their own show, and that's going to be Caravan. That comes out next year. We're casting it right now. Nice. Um, so awesome. like, so it really was just like the same writer's room, but making more than one show. Nice. A- and... Um, and then- and and but when we were but, but
2: are you guys all writers on each other's shows, basically?
1: No. Um, well because the pro- the projects are so personal to the writers, they kind of like went into their their little writer holes and came out with full seasons, you know? Um, I think Julian Hello. is is really set on collaborating for Star Tripper, but the Far Meridian is really Eli's like baby and Caravan is really Toe's baby. It's like everything Toe wants to see in media but hasn't been done yet. Um for the most part, they're pretty sequestered. I think because everybody's also writing the like their inaugural season. Everyone's piloting right now, right. so I think once they're past the pilot phase, they might open it up.
2: But but that's not how you guys did season three of ours, Paradoxica. You guys did have like a writers' room set up, and you guys all collaborated on the script together.
1: Yeah, and we all almost died. <laughs> Like we we were all so drained by that process. It was so much work, and everyone was like, "I'd rather just do it all myself and not have to collaborate with some, not have to ask, not have to like, like think through every tiny detail. I'd rather just do it."
2: But but what? So what does your writers' room look like? Did you guys just meet on weekends and nights, or did you guys have like, did you block out two weeks where you just wrote every day together? Or? It was it
1: was one weekend.
2: One weekend, you said. Okay.
1: Yeah. So oh, wow. so um Dan. Eli, Julian, and myself lived in L.A. at the time, and Danielle and Toe did not. So we we, were, we tried doing, you know, phone call meetings and Skype meetings, and it just—I don't know if it was the internet lag or just not sitting in the same room, but the energy wasn't clicking. So we flew Danielle and Toe out. We flew them out for a weekend. We put them up on our couches, and we shut them in my apartment for two days or two or three days, and we came out with the whole season. It was 14 episodes.
2: Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And, and that was when your, your, your brain, you were, you know, using your brain like a sponge and- Yeah, beca- because if
1: you right. spend, you know, three 14-hour days in a row trying to plot the most complicated time travel, Cold War sci-fi espionage plot in the world, you're going to be drained at the end. <laughs> and we were. Yeah, no kidding.
0: Do you think it's something you'll do again?
1: I, um, that's a really good question. I would do it again. Yeah. Yes, I would. Uh, I would need to sleep for a long time afterwards, but it was really rewarding and satisfying to come out of it with this story that we all felt so strongly was like the best version that we could have come up with.
2: Yeah, and do you feel like you do that with the seasons of these other shows once they're they have their first draft that you'll bring a team back together and like try to you know imp- do the second hmm. draft in a writers' room style or do you feel like you're just gonna let that decision be up to the showrunners on each of these shows? Or... Well,
1: for for these particular shows, it's kind of up to the showrunners because they're very personal projects. But you know, once those are over, we don't want to stop. <laughs> um, we've started talking to bigger companies. We're moving into like creative consulting for larger companies that want to start making podcasts. For example, you know, like the BBC has, is getting into modern audio fiction and, um, you know, companies like Stitcher are, are investing more heavily in fiction. So we've we started talking to companies like that. Um, and we're hearing what kind of show, you know, because they have all the market research. They know who's listening. They know what people want. So we're getting that information from the companies that have the infrastructure to make that research happen. And then we're taking that and it's being like, okay, what can we write that optimizes this data? And for those projects, for those bigger consulting projects, as we move forward, that is becoming a more collaborative environment, um, where maybe not all, all six or seven of us, but maybe like three or four of us break off into a subcommittee and make that show. Uh, I know I've been working on a new project with Dan and Eli, that is an adaptation of one of our favorite, favorite TV projects that like tried to get off the ground 15 years ago and never went anywhere.
2: Interesting, and that that you, you obviously are keeping secret and.
1: Yeah, I don't want to talk, I don't want to jinx it because like they yeah. might say no, we can't make it because we, right. we technically we don't have the rights to anything. But so
2: if these things happen with these other companies that you're approaching, so th- in those cases, then you would you'd most likely get paid and have a budget to do these shows if somebody else wanted to hire you like stitcher premium or somebody
1: yeah that's the plan nice um it's it's,
2: an amazing track record to um you know to build off of and be like look our shows are great
1: i know that's that's kind of where we're at is like that's why i made the first season of ours, paradoxica I, i made it right before i moved out to la because if nothing else I made one season of a show by myself and I could take it to animation audio houses and be like, look, I can make audio. Let me make your audio. Um, and then, like, yeah. right near the end of the first season, it got really popular. I was like, oh, maybe I could just do this. I don't even have to do the step in the middle.
2: Nice. Awesome. So so it's, well,
1: it's, it's always been just like, yes, we're getting fans. Yes, we're making money. But, like, in the end, it's really just projects that we want to make for ourselves. And... that we feel strongly about enough to show other people
0: and that's definitely the key takeaway in all of this and that is hey let's make something that we want to make anyway and then they'll like you'll find an audience like because there's four plus billion people on this planet you're bound to hit something four plus (laughs) my
1: dude there is seven (laughs) plus billion people on this planet
0: I was ridiculously (laughs) under. Yeah,
1: but no, but you're absolutely right. In among among 7 billion people, you're going to find at least a couple hundred that like the same things you like.
0: Right, exactly. So for all you artists out there, just keep making what you're making.
2: Yeah, that's kind of like my approach to my art and my filmmaking is just to make what I want to see and hopefully there's someone else that wants to see the same thing, you know? yeah um, and I was just been thinking about this lately because um, you know I, I everyone puts a big block on like what they're gonna make you know because it, like it needs to be good enough like it needs to be at a certain level it needs to be you know whatever like no. the perfect script but what yeah, exactly what I've been trying to t- t- tell myself recently what I learned from doing this short film project with Jeff recently is that um, maybe you could just make some stuff. You know, maybe just like if you have a script that you're that you're passionate about that you've written and that you like, and maybe not everybody you send it to thinks it's great, but maybe you see something in it, and it's not going to cost you any money. Make it, why not? You know, and see what other people think of it.
1: So there's this quote that really inspires me from um, the producer and host of This American Life, uh, Ira Glass. He's a big guy in radio, and I'm going to butcher the quote, so don't quote me exactly. But basically, he says while you're training to be an artist there is a point in your career in your life where the reason you got into being an artist is because you had artistic taste but your skills are still being developed but your taste is not you already have the taste and while your skills are developing there is a gap between your a, a, your technical ability as an artist and your artistic taste that got you in the game in the first place and that's why you perceive your work as bad because like you're learning, but the only way to get better is to keep making and keep doing and keep iterating. So I don't know, set yourself a creative deadline where like every month you're going to write one short script or make one thing or do something. And you'll be shocked at how quickly that gap between your skill and your taste closes. That's why I made Ars Paradoxica. like, when I started making that show, I didn't know anything about post-production sound design. And now like companies are paying me like a livable wage to do it within, you know, it took me like four years, five years. It was not even that long.
0: That's not bad. That's not bad.
2: Um, Jeff, I have one last topic I want to talk about. Do you have anything else that you want to jump on?
0: Uh, Just, you know what, just, you know, know, wanting to to know as far as, 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 you know, with, uh, uh, the Whisper Forge, and with the shows that you know you guys are creating, and now that now that you've got you know people actually looking at the work that you're doing, uh, do you foresee yourself doing any visual content later down the line?
1: That's a really good question. Um, the answer is that we'd like to. The only reason we're an audio company is because. I'm a sound designer. I have the technical skills to make a podcast happen almost on my own. I'm not great at writing, so I, I, I get writers. Um, but, you know, Eli's a screenwriter. Dan is a journalist. Um, Julian is an incredible graphic artist and illustrator and, you know, was a film editor for many years. So all of our constituent parts come from visual media. And I think the reason we stick with audio is because, A, I can do it on my own. With just me, I don't really need to hire any other crew. Although I have. This year we hired three employees, and I'm still freaking out about it. Um, (laughs) Good for you. Thank you. But, um, you know, like, we're in podcasts because in podcasts you only need a microphone and a sound designer. With a film, you need props and lighting and costumes and makeup and special effects like do you know how expensive cgi is for film it's so expensive do you know how cheap it is for audio it's super cheap because you don't need to see anything
2: i I, I do the begging on my hands and knees method to visual artists that's uh yeah the way so like so I, i do pay people but it's like i could never pay them what they're worth (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. So so we're in audio because it's what we can afford. I think, I mean, there's a version of Ars Paradoxica give a video game. It exists out somewhere in an alternate universe, but we wanted to make a video game out of that story so badly. And we just don't know how to program or 3D modeling or like, we don't know those things. So until we can meet those people or hire those people, yeah, we're, we're in audio for a little bit. No,
0: I can totally appreciate that. I mean, the the people that you have are specialists in what they they are doing now at the moment, and they're using those skills for the Whisper Forge at this particular moment. Yeah. and so yeah, I'll, yeah,
1: I'll, no, I'll do. Definitely. I'll say this one last thing before we move on to the next topic. Um, when we were putting together legal paperwork to define the type of legal entity that the Whisper Forge is, we were looking through different contract templates, and we we looked at like. A business or an LLC or a, a limited partnership. And it was like, okay, for our purposes. And then we found a band partnership agreement template. And it is a specific language that defines how bands work um, with touring and creating albums and stuff. And we looked at that and we were reading it through. And as long as you replace like album with season of podcast and like music with podcast, like it was exactly what we needed so technically the whisper forge is a band and we've made (laughs) six albums in the past three years and just because those 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 creative endeavors are audio doesn't mean they always will be
2: oh i guess my question was also about the same thing so i'm just curious like you know do, do you foresee like like let's say someone wanted to make Ars Paradoxica into a movie or a TV show.
1: Oh, dream like, of dreams.
2: Dream of dreams. Okay. It'll would happen. You, It'll happen. Like what what would your approach be? Like would you say, "Oh, well, let's go take these the first season or the second season or the third season and let's just turn that into a show and just adapt it?" Or would it be more like, "Okay, let's get like all transmedia on this thing and like let's let the podcast exist as it does and then like intertwine with the show and then like let's say it's successful, then intertwine with the video game and let's say that's successful, intertwine with a comic book, and then it's like in order to really get the full Ars Paradoxica story, you would literally have to listen to the podcast, read the comic book, <laughs> watch the movie, and then play the video game. And that yeah. would be like Experiencing the whole story by all those through all those different media is that more the way you want to go, or you look more like, okay, let's just take this and turn it into its own? So,
1: so I'll tell you, um, one of the shows I work on, The Bright Sessions, is actively being adapted for television right now. Um, I'm not really involved, I'm not a writer on that show, I'm more like the technical producer, I'm in charge of like the audio. Um, but she's been doing it. Lauren, uh, Lauren Shippen, uh, who created The Bright Sessions has been like working hard to turn it from a podcast into a television show. Um, And, like, as much as I want that decision to be up to me, I don't think it is. (laughs) Uh, I think that, like, when we sell the IP rights to ours Paradoxica, to a development company, they'll tell us, like, okay, you know, like, this stuff's good, this stuff's good, this is what we'd need to change if it went to TV. I think it would have to be transmedia. And I think also podcasting comes out as a more respectable genre if you don't treat it like the kiddie pool for other media, you know, there's a tendency to say, oh, well, I pitched this as a TV pilot, but no one bought it, so I'm going to make it into a podcast so that people can see I can do it, and then they'll buy it and turn it into a TV show. And that's, I think, the wrong way to go about it. I think that podcasting, in order to be respected as an art form in its own right, needs to stand as an art form in its own right. I think that... Like, I don't want to just say, okay, like, ignore the podcast. The TV show's the real story now. I was just podcasting because that's what I could afford. I want it to stand right. as a podcast, as a piece of audio fiction, and just take the story elements that resonate with, view, with like, an audience and try to translate that into a way that m- a wider audience is ready to receive it, you know? Um, you yeah. know, like, Ars Paradoxica is popular, but it's only as popular as podcasting is. TV just in general as a medium is way more popular. So Mm -hmm. it's about taking what people connected to in the podcast and translating it to what a TV audience connects to or a movie or a comic book or a video game. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. each, each format is its own work. Yeah. and yeah, I mean, again, uh, yeah, and I again, Ars
1: totally Paradoxica season one was literally the first thing I ever published professionally under my own name. So if I had a chance to do it again, you better believe there's some things I would change.
0: <laughs> Spoken like a true creator,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Right. So last question on this stuff, like... So you're more open to to selling the rights to a development company or to another production company and let them, letting them handle it rather than doing it all on your own and under your own, you know, company?
1: Basically. I mean, I'd love to right. be there. I'd love it to be like a Whisperforge co-production, but I don't think... Right. I mean, we're... The oldest one among us in the Whisperforge is 28. Like, there's just stuff that we... We haven't been in the industry long enough to know. We don't have the connections that someone at a development company is going to have to get it seen, to get it made. And we... As much as we love doing things all by ourselves, like we, you need that to if you're going to make it happen. So,
2: and you're not indie filmmakers; you're indie, you know, audio.
1: Yeah, like what do I know, know, know about camera lenses? I don't know anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, you, you can also do the do the do the method where rather than going to a big company that's going to drag it out for a million years and years and years is partner with like a freelance producer or, or filmmaker or even a smaller production company and do it that way and do it more on the independent side where sure. if you had like a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000, you could do a season or, sure. an, or a movie or something.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, we don't have the skills for that and no one has yet approached us about it. But if someone were to be like, Hey, I love this project with all my heart. I want to see it in the visual medium. I know I'm not a big company, but, like, let's do a round of crowdfunding and see if we can't get, like, a, a web series, you know, like a YouTube miniseries out of it, out of season one. Like, I, I don't know. I'd be down.
0: <laughs> okay. I know there's some people out there, so uh, let's do this thing.
1: <laughs> I I will say, well, here's the thing. I will say Ars Paradoxica has the, the one-two punch of being um, a, a historical period drama and a heavy sci-fi extravaganza. So like the budget's going to be kind of high. Period costumes and also time travel CGI budget. Oof.
2: Yeah, it can be tough. Period <laughs> pieces are yet to be something I've uh, tackled, but uh I have some friends who have done it and it seems like yeah, that's a lot a lot of money, a lot of time to get that So
1: product. much easier in audio, my dude.
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um all right well that was the last thing i had to t- talk about i mean i'm sure we could talk for another hour easy no problem but trying to keep these episodes to a decent length um jeff do you have any final questions for misha
0: um yeah so you've got caravan that's what whisper is uh conjuring up next what else is uh going on oh yeah with, uh, let me what else are you let me just
1: do a rundown of our slate i guess um yeah ours paradoxica is three seasons it's uh 36 ish episodes plus some minisodes that is complete you can listen to it uh entirely it's like start to finish it's really cool uh the far meridian is currently on hiatus in the middle of our second season there will there's going to be three uh and the third season will end uh probably mid 2020 with maybe some spinoffs after that. We'll see. Um, Star Tripper uh, just had its first season this year, and God, it is just so much fun. It is, like, the most fun you can have listening to a piece of audio, I think. Um, Season one is done, plus a Christmas special, and uh, we're working on season two, and as far as I've talked to Julian, like, that show could go for ten seasons and never be tired. Um, The next thing we're working on is Caravan, which is by Tozaman, uh, that is a Weird West tale about um, a canyon ruled by a demon and trying to escape it. Uh, that comes out early next year. Um, after that is The Tale of Bertie Brogdon by Julia Shafini. That's going to be like a pirate penny dreadful set in space. Um, where... I love the title. Me too. It's very, like, it's very Penny Dreadful. There's going to be this, like, third-person narrator. It's very storybook. I love it. Um, We're working on a sitcom set in... The basic premise is that, like, hell shuts down, so all the demons have to get new jobs at the same suburban shopping mall in the 90s. (laughs) That's by Kristen Mercurio, who is the star of Ars Paradoxica. She's also very funny and a brilliant writer, so we're looking for that probably in the second half of 2019. Our first nonfiction project is um, a deep dive into the minds behind the Salem Witch Trials. Um, that is by Dan Manning and uh, his creative partner, Kate Deverack. That is coming soon, I think. Uh, possibly as late as like June or July, but possibly as early as February. I'm, I haven't really hmm. checked in with them in a while. Um, we're, we're talking to big companies. We're talking to small companies. We're trying to figure out what our life looks like past 2020 but that's what we've got going on right now
0: That's fantastic. Well,
2: congratulations on all your success Misha. Um I really now I'm, I'm going to, you know, get Ars uh, Paradoxica on my uh, on iTunes and oh, yeah. strap it into my earbuds and uh, you know, just uh experience the thing i'm a huge
0: sci-fi fan
1: oh so, you're gonna love really arse guy. if you like hard sci-fi that's yeah. really your thing um all
0: yeah it's only taken me a couple of years to get him to.
1: <laughs> <but>, you've know, <laughs> been like in it this whole time um the, the,
2: the thing is it's funny like the one narrative podcast that i've actually listened to is um the futurama uh podcast oh the
1: that the that episode did. of futurama they did
2: yeah which was like we, me and my wife probably listened to it like 10 times. Oh. Like we were huge fans of that. So if you like that. Futurama,
1: Star Tripper might be more your speed. It's like the, a cross between Futurama, Galaxy Quest, and Cowboy Bebop. Ooh. Yeah. Sounds nice. Um, awesome. all, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can check them out on our website, whisperforge.org.
2: Nice. Awesome. Yeah, we'll have all that show stuff in the show notes. Um, where can people find you? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? Uh, I am
1: you, most prominently on Twitter. On Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is at Misha Etc. M-I-S-C-H-A-E-T-C. That is nice. where you can find out about... Uh, I retweet most of the Whisperforge stuff, but I also work on The Bright Sessions and my stuff at Wondery and my stuff with LeVar Burton, and I have some other stuff cooking with Stitcher for next year as well.
2: Awesome. Excellent. Well, you sound like a podcast-like... I don't know. What would it be like?
0: I'm calling it right now. He is a budding media mogul. Why, thank you so Podcast much. Podcast mogul. Yes. Oh,
2: yeah. Podcast wizard, I would say. Yeah,
1: I, 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 t- I tend to go with audio movie. sorcerer. A wizard makes it seem like it all came from like di- diligent training, but sorcerer is <laughs> like, no, you had it within you the whole time.
2: Yeah, it was born within <laughs> you from the very beginning. Nice. Excellent. Well, um, thanks so much for being on the show, Misha. Um, you know, we'll have to have you back on, um, you know, in, in the future to hear more about, you know, where your shows have gone, what's happening next. And, you know, we didn't even talk about, you know, so much of, of the, the, the world of podcasting. And I probably have, I have more questions about just how <laughs> the other shows you work for operate and stuff. I'm so fascinated because yeah. like, you know, I, I I, I, despite doing 180 something episodes of this podcast like I really don't know very much about <laughs> like how it all happens you know and like, oh yeah
1: oh. ask me anytime A- after we turn this off we can stick around I'll, I'll answer any questions you might have and I'm that's I'm nice. so happy to come back on the show whenever you guys well, will have me
0: that's awesome
2: cool um all right am I doing the outro
0: Jeff is it my job today uh no I think it's my turn oh
2: no you, you did didn't you do the intro bro
0: I did to do the intro. You can do okay. Fine, fine, fine. I'm a, I'm an actor. I'm an actor. I'm <laughs> you, always you on. Do the intro so and the outro. He's Jeff
1: is to... given oh, lines man. and he will say them.
0: <laughs> just just tell me what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Albert. Right. Okay.
2: So you can check out our website at MickeyMoviesIsHard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about in this episode, and hopefully soon um, a breakdown of all the guest co hosts that we have on the show. So it's not just Timothy and I on there. That'll be. Jeff and Colin and Andrew and hopefully soon Liz and all these other wonderful people. I want to get on here to, to co-host with me. Um, you can find us. Uh, you can send us an email to podcast at hard dot com if you want. If you have questions, topic suggestions, guest suggestions, anything, criticisms, accolades, whatever you want to throw at us, you can email us uh, that stuff. Um, we really want to hear from you, especially post Timothy. I really want to hear what people are thinking of the podcast. Now that Timothy has left us, um, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, and now also Instagram at MMIH Podcast. And please, if you'd like the show, tell a friend, help us get the word out. You can also leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, would love to, to see those post Timothy just to see what people think. Um, and thanks, Jeff, for a wonderful episode. And again, Misha, thank you for being on the show.
0: Oh, yeah. Not a problem.
2: All right. Talk to you guys
0: next week. Laters. And. Cut.